Thanks for tuning in to episode two of Inside the Scale. And thanks for all the support. I am in Oakland today, and I'm sitting down with my friend Adam Zimmon, head of product and partnerships at a company called Launch Darkly. I'm very excited about this episode. Of course, I'm excited to talk to Adam, but I'm also excited because once upon a time, I worked there too. I helped their first sales VP figure out how to sell to engineering leaders. And so I know how great this company is. Before joining, I distinctly remember being beyond impressed by founders Edith and John and the maturity of the product that they had built with a very small team. So if you haven't heard of it, in very simple terms, LaunchDarkly helps companies show different versions of software to different users based on rules that you set. And this happens in real time, all at scale. Uh, according to their website, this happens 200 billion with a B times per day. From a scalability perspective, that's something to drool over. So like I said, this is exciting uh, for multiple reasons. And I can't wait to hear what AZ has to say about building the product and partnerships department there. So welcome AZ. Bring everyone up to speed on Launch Darkly. What's the latest? Adam, thank you for having me uh, on the program today. I want to also uh, recognize that the only reason that I am actually known by AZ, at, by folks at Launch Darkly, is because uh, this guy uh, came in, uh, started a, literally a week before me, and therefore was able to take the name Adam um, with a team of 14 people um, before I could join. So everyone else on the planet knows me as Adam, but uh, that's all right. There's um, only room for one. There's only room for one. That's it. This is, you know, so it is written. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it was a great opportunity to get to know you a bit. And, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. We've changed and grown uh, significantly uh, since you left, although, uh, you know, not because of that. Um, yeah, I think that uh, when we started uh, two years ago, we were about uh, 14, 15 people. Uh, we're now just about to 100. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, our customer growth has also uh, skyrocketed. And, uh, you know, we used to, you know, kind of uh, be impressed with ourselves uh, just from a scale of operations perspective, where I think when we joined, we were serving uh, just over, I think, 2 billion feature flags a day. Um, and we are now uh, at around 200 billion feature flags per day. So a uh, couple orders of magnitude. So AZ, just for the people out there that don't know what feature flags are, why don't you fill everyone in? Uh, sure. So a feature flag uh, is you know, basically a fancy if statement that a developer puts in their code. So basically saying, you know, if you meet these certain criteria, you will do this thing or experience this behavior. Um, and if you don't meet these criteria, then you will not. Um, the cool part about a feature flag is that instead of having to have uh, that evaluation or you know determination of um, the behavior take place uh, as static in the code, you actually have the ability to call out to a database or to an external, in our case, an external service um, that is able to be changed. Um, without having to redeploy your code or rewrite your code or rebuild your application or restart your application, um, which are you know other ways that people have done this 
previously to feature flags where they wanted to make a change to behavior, they'd have to go and they'd have to update the code. They'd have to change it on the servers that it was running on. Um, or, you know, it, in the case of like a client-side application, like a mobile app, you need to download a new version of the application if you wanted to see the new functionality. The benefit of feature flags is that it gives you these little kind of control points uh, in your code to be able to make changes without having to do uh, any type of redeployment or update. So this is uh, common for folks that have experienced uh, this at scale, would see it on sites like Netflix or Facebook or uh, Google uses this extensively, uh, technology, this technology extensively to be able to um, allow different cohorts, different groups of individuals to have different user experiences, um, to try things out, uh, to get feedback early from power users, um, to make sure that new feature functionality is uh, supported and sustainable with their infrastructure um, before rolling it out to 100% of their audience. Um, they also use this, uh, a lot of times, uh, larger services use this technique to be able to um, isolate uh, failure uh, in the sense of if you have a feature that uh, you can easily toggle or switch on and off um, without having to redeploy code, if something starts to go sideways in your service or your infrastructure, you have the ability to actually just turn off a segment of that or a small portion of that infrastructure without having to take down your entire service. Um, and so this gives a lot more control uh, and eliminates a lot of risk for people that are offering you know, cloud-based services, uh, or even in some cases, uh, you know, kind of mobile applications or you know, end-user endpoints. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and AZ, I can remember being particularly attracted to LaunchDarkly because of the immaculate infrastructure that founders John and Edith had created. I mean, you can, within milliseconds, you know, I think it's eight milliseconds or something, make a change to a website if something, you know, in your words, goes sideways. So if you were to you know, deploy some version of your software that hadn't properly been, let's say, load tested or maybe even just functionally tested um, and it's affecting users and, you know, it, it either makes your servers go down or, you know, in the case of a bug, you know, it makes it so that, you know, your, your users can't access certain pages. Within milliseconds, you have the ability to actually sort of remove that feature from from production and to me that's that's a, that's an amazing uh, engineering feat um, because normally this type of thing would you know require like you said a developer to go in and make a change and the change would have to be tested and deployed but with this you literally with the flick of a button can can make those changes without having to go through that whole process. And, and I sound like I'm trying to sell LaunchDarkly, but <laughs> that's, that's definitely not the case. So, so tell me though, AZ, so you know, I was particularly attracted by the infrastructure um, and the founders uh, and the team that you know, was there, but what brought you to LaunchDarkly? Sure. Um, so prior to LaunchDarkly, um, I, you know, had been working in kind of, uh, you know, enterprise software for a long time. Uh, I spent, you know, combined almost 15 years at EMC and VMware. Uh, then, you know, kind of left there and went and spent a year at GitHub. 
Um, and after that, I, you know, kind of left and, you know, was trying to figure out what was next, was really looking for kind of next um, game-changing tool and, you know, organization that I could really have an impact on. Uh, and so there were two things that I was looking for. Uh, one was a product uh, and or a platform that I could, you know, really get excited about the impact that it would have uh, on an, on our industry. Um, and the other thing that was really starting to influence what I was looking for was, uh, you know, as a white guy in Silicon Valley, uh, I was looking for a leadership team that I could join that didn't look like me, um, or exclusively like me at least. Um, and so the notion of diversity uh, was something that was top of mind. Um, and, you know, I think that I started doing some consulting and advising, um, worked with about a dozen different uh, dev tools uh, startups uh, over the next uh, two and a half, three years. And uh, then, you know, kind of got connected with LaunchDarkly uh, and immediately saw the amazing value that the product had. Um, and was also uh, really impressed with the founders, um, Edith and John, um, and was you know excited about the opportunity to be able to be a member of a leadership team that was starting you know from a place of diversity uh, to be able to look at the advantage that would give us uh, over time in building a more diverse organization, which I truly believe leads to better products. Wow, I was definitely not expecting you to say that diversity was top of mind for you, but I, I love that answer. What Everyone doesn't think like that. What drove you to that realization? You know, I think that it's been something that uh, has been something that I've, you know, kind of thought about and cared about for a long time. Um, it's something that I worked hard on when I was in college trying to increase diversity of students um, at Bowdoin uh, and worked on a number of programs to actually, uh, you know, bring more diverse folks to campus. Um, then, you know, as I started my professional career, uh, you know, I think that it started at VMware where I was trying to uh, work with a group there that was trying to promote uh, women um, in tech and trying to make sure that uh, that was something that was getting more attention from VMware as an organization. Uh, and then that really kind of shifted uh, in uh, 2013, 2014, when I left and went to GitHub. And there was a huge push, um, not only from GitHub, but I think, uh, you know, from a conversation perspective um, in our industry. Uh, starting to talk about uh, diversity and inclusion uh, much more um, readily. Uh, you know, I give a lot of credit to my wife, who actually is um, a diversity and equity coach in education, in public education, and she works with schools around the Bay Area, um, helping them to reduce the achievement gap um, of students of color in, element, in public schools. So, you know, I looked and saw the stuff that was going on in tech and saw it as an opportunity for me to make a difference, have an impact. Um, started working with organizations like Code2040, um, being able to be a mentor for their fellows program, um, and then, um, you know, just really started to see the impact uh, that, the positive impact that having a more diverse organization um, 
you know, imparted on products and, you know, organizations in general. And so wanted to make sure that that was, you know, part of what was next for me. How can other people get involved? How, how can other people make a difference in diversity at their companies? I mean, I think that there's a ton of organizations that, you know, you can volunteer with and, you know, be able to, uh, you know, expend your energy um, in that way um, for people that are looking for, you know, just getting started, their structures and things like that. Um, but I think that ultimately, you know, the more that I've done it uh, and the more that I've cared about it, the more that I've realized that it's also so significantly about personal reflection and being able to have, you know, put your, being willing to put yourself in what may feel like awkward conversations um, and, you know, push yourself to think more deeply um, about um, how experiences are being or how, you know, uh, projects or uh, things that you encounter are being experienced by other individuals. Um, you know, for me as a white guy, um, you know, a big part of that is recognizing, you know, my privilege and recognizing how much of my default behavior um, is based on that privilege and trying to, you know, course correct my own behavior uh, to account for that. For me, a big part of diversity isn't, you know, just the box checking. It's the inclusion aspect um, of, you know, this is, you know, how do you create a culture where you're welcoming of difference? Um, and how do you create a space where, you know, the uh, way that... Uh, you know, uh, Nicole Sanchez used to put it, a uh, woman that I worked with, who I absolutely think is amazing. Um, she runs Via Consulting now. Um, she was the uh, VP of uh, Social uh, Enablement or Social Empowerment. I forget what the, her exact title was at GitHub. Um, but she was there, you know, basically the, she was brought in to be the head of diversity. Um, and the way that she used to put it is, you know, wanting to enable people to bring their whole selves to work. Um, and it's a simple thing to say, um, and, you know, I think that for, you know, people in, you know, uh, with my background or my situation, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who, a lot of white guys that are able to do that. Um, but that's not the case, uh, for people that are coming from different backgrounds for women, for people of color. I think that there's a lot more challenges, uh, that they face of being able to feel like they can bring their whole selves to work. Um, and, you know, I think that that is something that I would really love to see continue at Launch Darkly um, of enabling people to feel comfortable with the skin they're in and feel comfortable with the um, identity that they have and being able to be uh, treated as part of the team, treated as an equal um, to accomplish you know, the company's goals. All right, AZ, so, so let's kind of jump to the beginning. So you join Launch Darkly, you're in a leadership role, diversity is top of mind for you, and, and you're in charge of, of building the, the product team, uh, of running the product at Launch Darkly. I mean, wh where do we go from here? It was slow, you know, it was really kind of being 
very thoughtful and diligent with hires um, and trying to make sure that we were taking the time to get the right people um, into the right roles. Um, and, you know, it was trying to also balance the need to execute and get things out there, try it out, um, get things out quickly and iterate. Um, and so, you know, kind of approached the kind of marketing and messaging work similar to, you know, I'd approached engineering projects in the past where it's like, how do you get, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, MVP or, you know, uh, as close to MVP as possible out the door and start to get feedback and iterate on it. Um, started shopping it around, started working on it in the form of, you know, uh, pitch presentation for the sales team um, before moving to, you know, actually building out a website um, so that we could iterate quickly uh, with every single customer we were talking to. Um, as far as building the team, uh, where I started was I said, okay, from if we're going to redo our messaging, we need uh, two things. We need uh, new words and we need new pictures. Um, so I hired uh, our first, you know, kind of content uh, manager, um, Kim, and hired our first designer, uh, Melissa. Um, and, uh, you know, basically the way that I kind of uh, positioned these roles to the two of them is, you know, one of them was responsible for the words, one of them was responsible for the pictures, and together they were the owners of the message and the brand. Um, and, you know, that was... I feel like a crucial thing to be able to get us, you know, kind of visibility and make sure that we were with that additional visibility, actually attracting the right attention and getting um, the right kind of uh, pipeline built out for the sales organization. Okay. Okay. So, so it sounds like at the beginning, your values are, you know, on the people front, diversity and inclusion and on the product side of things, sort of rapid iteration and prototyping, how did you accomplish that? Uh, were you sort of, were you dogfooding launch, with Launch Darkly? What was your plan? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that, so here's the thing is that like, um, the way that we accomplished this from a messaging standpoint uh, was that we knew that the rebuild of the website was going to be, you know, time consuming and expensive. And, um, you know, yes, in an ideal world, we'd be able to like iterate quickly in that context. Um, but also realize that the feedback loop wasn't really as um, immediate as we got with giving a new, you know, pitch deck or a new slide to a member of the sales organization um, because that was kind of more immediate feedback when, you know, a customer says, you know, kind of nods and uh, says, oh, yeah, I get this and, you know, continues on versus you get to a slide or a message and the, you know, potential customer is just like, uh, what do you mean by that? Right. And then that's kind of an immediate feedback, you know, prompt of, okay, we need to iterate on that some more because it's not clear. Um, so being able to work with the sales organization to really refine the messaging before actually putting down, um, you know, a significant chunk of effort and time to rebuild the website was huge value, um, to make sure that the website, when it finally did launch was uh, pretty close to what we thought was going to resonate with a broader audience. 
That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, so, so let's fast forward. What does your org look like now? Well, so, uh, we did eventually after about a year, uh, hire, uh, Bill, our VP of marketing. Um, and so I was able to transition the marketing components back over to him, uh, and, uh, was able to focus on building out the product organization. Did that for about a year. Uh, and then after, uh, that Edith and John, uh, came to me and said, you know, we'd actually, uh, really like you to, uh, look at building out, uh, a platform organization, um, and platform team. Um, and, you know, for, from that, the, you know, kind of asks around this notion of, uh, platform were a few things. One was, um, you know, kind of continue to engage with the community and uh, develop awareness and uh, of LaunchDarkly as a platform. So engaging with developer communities, get engaging with uh, customer communities uh, around, you know, how do you build things on top of LaunchDarkly? Um, and so I was already running the developer relations team. So this organization would be part of that. Um, larger org. And then the other uh, components of this were thinking about, you know, the integrations uh, that we want to build and, you know, how do we align with uh, some of the partners or uh, ecosystem um, and create partnerships um, in that ecosystem. Um, and trying to really kind of push to garner mindshare around LaunchDarkly as the, you know, a part of a solution in a broader context. So I have a question for you, actually. How do you know when to go for the point solution, and how do you, or or how do you know when to go for the end-to-end solution? Um, I think that a big part of it is, you know, understanding your customers and the workflows that they have. Um, you know, the I think when you start to talk about the solution you provide as being something that um, does a lot of, uh, accomplishes a lot of different tasks, you run into that kind of danger zone of, are, are you competing with, you know, like, for instance, if you were to say, oh, well, we do, you know, everything from initial, you know, like, uh, editor, uh, all the way through CI, CD, all the way through uh, uh, build uh, artifact creation, all the way through deployment management and infrastructure management. Like, there's a lot of folks that you've basically just signed on as your competitors. And so, you know, thinking about it in that context, it's like, how much uh, time and resources are you realistically going to have to put into each one of those areas? Um, whereas if you just say, Hey, look, the thing I'm going to focus on is, you know, like I'm going to focus on continuous integration and I'm going to make sure that I'm the best continuous integration platform out there. You can start to say, okay, well, what are the people, the things that people need for being able to, you know, feed into a continuous integration system? What are the, you know, uh, areas where people, you know, write their code, store their code, um, that I need to plug into, right? Then you can think about it on the output side. Okay, well, where are the people that be, where are the places that people are actually looking to store their builds or store their, uh, you know, deployments or the infrastructures that they're deploying their code onto? Okay, how do I plug into those, right? As opposed to trying to do it all. Um, you know, when you get to be a larger uh, vendor and you have, you know, market share, 
uh, then you can start to look at saying, oh, well, maybe I need to expand into these other areas to be able to grow my total addressable market, to be able to you know, grow my opportunity. Um, and there are two ways to do that. You either you know, build the thing yourself or you acquire a company. And you know, the third way is you just partner with someone um, and you build really strong partnerships. Um, but uh, you know, the kind of uh, mentality of a small company, of a startup, is that you really need to be laser focused on what is the one thing that you're going to do and you're going to do better than anybody else. Because if you can do that, then people are going to be looking to use your tool, your solution as part of their overall workflow. Um, and they're going to say, no, I don't want to use the, you know, kind of, you know, underfunded thing from the, uh, you know, competitor that does it all. I want to use the thing that is built by the experts that are thinking about this day, this problem day in and day out, that are solving it in a way that makes sense for me and my team. So at this point, you've, you've shared with us the fact that you've built out the product team, you've worked on marketing, and now you're, you're looking into building out a partnerships department or team. What, what's the biggest challenge that you've faced so far at the company? The challenging component for me uh, right now is figuring out this kind of ecosystem partnerships um, portion of building a platform. Um, you know, how do you enable uh, engineers at LaunchDarkly to be successful building integrations and getting the right uh, attention from partners um, when we release something or when we need something from an API or from uh, someone else's system? Um, how do we have a conversation? How do we have a relationship there to be able to get the things that we need to unblock engineering? Uh, and likewise, how do we start to influence uh, vendors that you know we you know have deemed you know value add in our space to start thinking about LaunchDarkly and how they can actually accommodate uh, incorporating our platform, our solution into their products. Um, and so I think that building out that organization and the timing of it is something that I, you know, this is something that I've been struggling with of um, trying to figure out what is, what are the right uh, first steps to take. So what do you do here? I mean, you know, the, the co-founders of the company have given you this initiative to build out a partnerships department organization team. Um, what exactly do you do? I mean, do you go and hire people? What, what's, what's the move? What's the play? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that makes this uh, challenging for me is that I have a fair amount of kind of PTSD around uh, this role. Um, I've been in this role, um, you know, as kind of the first hire for a Know, partnerships or ecosystem initiative um, a few times uh, and have had it go very well and have also had it go very poorly. Um, and, you know, I think now as someone who is, you know, being tasked with, you know, potentially building out a team to do this, um, I've got a lot of hesitation uh, around how to build that team out because I don't want to see them fail and I want to make sure that 
I am setting them up to be successful. And one of the biggest challenges um, for some context in, um, in that regard is partnerships in the early days um, especially, and like I think that this is, there's a component of this, you know, that is a theme of partnerships or business development, um, even as your companies get, even as your company gets larger. Um, but especially in the early days, um, it's kind of you know, 99% magic, 1% hard work, um, you know, and that the reason I say that is that you are asking. Um, Basically, especially in the context of having somebody build something for your company, right? You're asking an external party, a third party, to, you know, invest their resources um, and actually do work that benefits, you know, potentially both of you, but realistically, it's benefiting, you know, your company. Um, that is kind of, in a lot of uh, ways, an unnatural ask. Um, and, you know, yes, there are definitely instances and cases where there are very, you know, natural alignments and everything works out and the, you know, third party or partner that you're trying to engage with is just like, yeah, that's amazing. That's, we needed something to fill that gap that we're hearing from customers and we are on it. We've got, you know, a dozen headcount that we're going to put on this and we're going to make this, you know, we're going to ship this in the next, you know, month and a half. That is rare. <laughs> um, more often than not, um, it's, you know, as the person that's trying to build these relationships, it's just a lot of kind of um, waiting and, you know, trying to, you know, uh, find new ways of positioning or messaging and, you know, convincing people to uh, work with you. Um, and so, Knowing that, having had that experience both on the kind of making magic happen side uh, on occasion and also on the experience of, yeah, we just don't have any resources for that um, end of the equation. Um, you know, I have some hesitation at Launch Darkly um, for, you know, an interesting reason. One of the, you know, the reason that I have this hesitation is that I feel like we've actually built a really strong culture that is based around uh, OKRs or metrics, um, so objectives, key results, you know, actually being able to measure progress. Um, and, you know, this is, it, this is one of those roles that, in my experience, is really hard to have predictable outcomes for. And so being in charge of an organization or a team that I'm asking to, you know, say, I give you a lofty objective of, I want you to create, uh, you know, a partnership with Microsoft that results in, um, you know, some type of joint collateral, joint um, integration, right? Well, they're in control of, like I said, about 1% of that outcome. And so how do you, in good faith as a leader, say to your team, this is your objective, but I'm not going to give you 99% of what you need to accomplish it. You got to just kind of hope that happens, um, and it's completely out of your control, no matter what you do. Um, that, in my opinion, is you know a poor way to lead. Um, I one of the things you know as a leader that I think a lot about is how do I ensure that I'm giving the appropriate tools uh, to my team 
to be successful. Um, and if, you know, I can't, then I consider that a failure on my part, not on theirs. Um, and so I'm, you know, kind of conflicted of like, I feel like, yes, we need to be doing some of this, but I'm really hesitant about recruiting or um, signing someone else up to take that responsibility. You know, and looking at this from like an external perspective, if I were to, you know, position myself as an advisor for Launch Darkly, like I would say, you absolutely need to be thinking about this stuff. Um, and, you know, would say, you know, you need to be prioritizing, you know, to some degree, the ability to uh, start engaging with partners uh, in, you know, probably predominantly, uh, you know, building things capacity. Like you need to be building more integrations. You need to be expanding how you talk about those integrations um, from a marketing perspective. Um, and, you know, I think that there is a component of that that is the relationship management side um, that otherwise it just kind of falls apart, right? You know, like if you build a thing and it happens to work with, you know, vendors A and B and you go out to them and you're just like, hey, we built a thing. Um, we'd love to do, you know, a blog post with you. Well, that's great, um, but you're definitely not um, doing anything to enable their sales force to understand what the value is of your, you know, integration, that they would bring it up in um, a sales call. Um, you're not, uh, you may or may not be doing anything even internally to explain to your sales team, um, you know, what the value of this integration is and, you know, how do they then engage, you know, how, what's the channel they use to engage with uh, folks at that other vendor? Um, you know, if they, you know, get into a situation where, uh, you know, we uh, want to build, uh, you know, I'll, you know, pick on uh, New Relic. Say we wanted to build a cool integration with New Relic. We've got one that we, you know, kind of started, kicked off, you know, a few years ago. It hasn't been really used um, extensively, but, you know, it's there. Um, we have it. Um, but we haven't done anything to enable the New Relic sales team to know that, oh, Launch Darkly can feed information um, into New Relic. And that's a great way to be able to get um, understanding of who's actually passing through your feature flags and why. Um, and why they're getting variations that they are. Um, at the same time, you know, the sales team on the Launch Darkly side knows that we have an integration, but doesn't know New Relic well enough to be able to, you know, when somebody says, yeah, I want to be able to do this with feature flags and be able to track back, you know, metrics to how my application is being used um, by using a feature flag as an event source. You know, our, our sales team isn't going to readily come up with the... Uh, you know, kind of reaction of, oh, well, we have this New Relic integration. If you were a New Relic customer, um, you'd be able to do that. Um, and so, but, you know, at the same time, you know, you need to balance that, like I said, it's that three-year end state, um, that, you know, long-term, you know, where do we want to get to with how do we take that first step? How do we take, uh, you know, make that, you know, first hire that, you know, you can't task them with, you know, I can't bring on a single individual and say, your job is to 
um, not only handhold the building of you know X number of integrations, but then you are the enablement resource for all internal sales and all external sales organizations that touch that integration. Um, and you know here are your you know metrics around adoption that I want to you know goal you on. Like it's it's a that's just too much, right? So how do you break that down um, in a way that gives any individual headcount the agency to um, be successful, right? that give them the ability to know that if they execute, um, they will hit targets that you've established for them and that those targets are within their control. So Izzy, we've been talking for a while now. I'm, I'm curious, what would you have done differently knowing what you know now? What, what changes would you make? How would your experience have been different at LaunchDarkly? I'm not sure that there's one thing. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of things are uh, pretty common uh, in terms of, like, being articulated, and it's just, you know, hard in the moment to, you know, actually do. Um, I think one thing is documentation, um, you know, writing stuff down, especially process, how you get things done. Yeah. Um, you know, being able to document process is a great way of motivating um, repeatability uh, as well as scale. Um, I think that the, you know, other aspect of that is you know, being able to understand when you document a process uh, and actually take the time to write it down, uh, it gives you a very different perspective on whether or not you need to change or in some way formalize a process uh, to the benefit or to the, you know, kind of detriment of your team or organization, right? And like, and what I mean by that is that, like, if you just go in from the perspective of saying, hey, we need a process for this, right? Uh, oftentimes that's a misnomer. Oftentimes you have a process, you just don't like it, and or it's complicated, or it is something that maybe not everyone on the team knows, or uh, something like that. And so the first step should always be to you know actually write down well what is the process for this, and then you know think about okay well how can I make it better. Um, I think uh, the other thing you know kind of knowing what I know now. I was able to see uh, tremendous validation. So this isn't so much that I would do it differently, more a validation that I would do it similarly of, you know, going back to the diversity aspect of really kind of pushing to hire uh, diverse folks early um, because it really has shaped the culture and impacted the culture of us as a now close to 100-person organization um, in a way that if we hadn't started thinking about it early, um, we would never really be able to recover from. Um, and what I mean by that is that, yeah, we might be able to get the you know multicolored picture for our team photo, um, but the way that that notion of inclusion has permeated the way we 
uh, run meetings, the way we talk uh, to each other in the office, the way that we um, think about uh, the asks that we make of different teams. Um, I feel like that is something that you can't change uh, when you are when you already have an established base of individuals. Um, I've seen folks try. I've seen organizations try to shift that right. and be really unsuccessful. So I think that that's that's something that I would you know definitely encourage uh, founders or early leaders uh, to be thinking about as they're looking at scaling and growing their teams um, is being mindful of how do you engage and bring in folks that are going to have a different perspective than you. Um, and, you know, challenge yourself uh, to, you know, think about interviewing not as a culture fit, but as a culture add. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for being on the show, AZ, and for talking about diversity. It's not talked about enough. Uh, I appreciate you allowing me to come to your fancy three-floor office in Oakland and, and sharing it with me, and uh, I wish you and Launch Starkly the best. All right. Thanks so much, AZ.